So as many of you would know, I come from Kenya. I keep talking about it all the time. So you, should, you would know for those who are visiting, I am Kenyan. And um, one of the challenges or one of the problems that uh, the government in Kenya is dealing with or was dealing with a number of years ago had to do with street children. Uh, there were a lot of kids, some who were preteen and others who were just early teens. A lot of these kids were living in the streets. And the reason they were in the streets is because either they were abused in their families uh, or their guardians or parents were unable to provide the necessary care for these children. And so these kids would find themselves in the streets. Some would be there a few months. Others would be there a number of years. And while they're in the streets, obviously, they're learning to fend for themselves. And um, as the longer they stay in the streets, the harder they get in terms of uh, being tough, being um, rough, and being uh, in, in gangs. And so many of them would commit all sorts of crimes. So for example, if you would be driving down the streets and you had your hand uh, just dangling off of your car door with your window down and you had a nice watch, they would yank the watch off of your hand literally grab it. If you're a woman with some nice earrings that are dangling and they looked pricey, they'd come and rip them out of your ear. Others, so for example, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA. So if you're an NBA fan, you'd probably buy yourself a nice hat. And so you'd be in your vehicle with your nice hat, enjoying your drive, and you'd stop at a red light, they would come and snatch it. Or a cell phone, you're talking on your phone, it's gone. These kids did this, and they continue to do this to this day. Very rough kids. Now, you look at them, they're sweet kids. But then if you met them in a dark alley at night, uh, you will not think they're sweet. Because they will probably leave you half dead. Because they're a gang of kids. And they would do this to you. So a friend of mine decided, hey, you know what, I want to do something about these kids. So he began uh, visiting with these kids in the street. The first few months, these kids were really rough toward him. But he kept on bringing them lunch, kept on bringing them dinner, and he'd spend a lot of time with them, half a day, sometimes all day on the streets with these kids. And they began to soften to him, toward him. So he decided, okay, now that these kids have created a rapport with them, let me try and see if I can get them off of the streets. Maybe I can create, have a deal with a Christian camp and have these kids come and stay at the camp for a bit. And so he did so. He made all the arrangements. He brought a van, brought these kids to the Christian camp. Now, these kids have been living in the streets. They have no manners. They don't know how to eat around a dinner table. He would bring some, a, a nice platter of chicken there and all the hands will be in it and they'll be heaping their plates and stealing from other kids. So obviously the first thing that this guy began to do was to teach these children some house rules for us to live together. This is how you'll be using the bathroom. This is how you will prepare yourself for dinner. You will not come to dinner with your dirty clothes. You'll have to wash up and be clean. When we are seated together, we will pray together. And then each one will serve, but we're not heaping our plates. There is enough for seconds and thirds. He began teaching these kids house rules. You see, Psalm 15 will do the same thing for us. It'll teach us house rules. Now why? Outside of Jesus, you and I were rebellious against God. 
And from God's perspective, when he would look at your behavior and mine, it would be equivalent to the behavior of those three children. Where we are rough, we are rebellious, and we are not even worthy to be called his children. And so now that we live in God's house, he'll give us some house rules. That's what we find in Psalm 15. So, five traits that God will highlight in this text. The five will be your character, your words, your company, your integrity, and your commerce. Again, the five points we'll look at. Your character, your words, your company, your integrity, and your commerce. And we will unpack those as we go. But let's read the text first. So if you have the Bible, Psalm 15, verse 1. This is David who wrote this psalm asking God a question. He will say, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? This is a dwelling and living in the presence of God as an honored guest. Okay? And then the Lord responds, verse 2. The one whose walk is blameless who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Just think about the level now that the Lord is, this is standard God is setting. Verse three, whose tongue utters no slander and who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be put to shame or will never be shaken. Okay, so you may read this list, you know, who will live in God's presence the one who is blameless, does what is righteous, speaks the truth from their heart, does not slander, does not do a neighbor wrong, casts no slur, and the list goes on. You may read this list and you may, th- may think to yourself, my goodness, I don't, I don't do what's, what God requires. This list already shames me, you may be thinking this. Well, let me say the framework of how we are going to think or how we ought to think about this list here. I want you to imagine that you traveled to Kenya. And when you went to Kenya, you went to the eastern side of the city to the ghetto where Ezra and his family live. And there you saw Ezra as one of these street children who he is vicious, ill-mannered. Yes, he has beautiful brown eyes, but that's the only good thing you see. He's filthy and dirty, swearing a storm and everything. But you see this young man and you think, if I leave him here, his future is done. And so you have mercy and compassion over Ezra and you choose to adopt him. So you go through the adoption agencies in Africa and you take care of it. Ezra is available for adoption. And then you say, okay, yes, now you have to pay all this money. You have to fill out all this paperwork with the Kenyan government. And then now to bring him to Canada, you have to fill out all this paperwork with the immigration of Canada so that Ezra can become a Canadian citizen. And now 
for you to adopt Ezra, now he will take on your family name. He's now Ezra Schmidt. <laughs> so Ezra Schmidt. Canadian citizen. This kid from the eastern side of Nairobi in Africa. Now he becomes a Canadian because you've adopted him. Nothing that he did to deserve to be adopted by you. Nothing. It's all your grace over Ezra. You go to your lawyer and you change your will and you include Ezra right there as your son. Now Ezra is living in your house and you had prepared a room for him. You painted the walls. You, you bought a new bed. You bought shoes. You bought a soccer ball because he loves soccer. All the good things he likes you have in his room. So let's say one morning you woke up. In the mi- 5, 5.30 in the morning and you heard this racket going on downstairs. You come downstairs, you go to the kitchen and you find Ezra on his knees with a mop, mopping the floor. And he had already cleaned the deck and he's busy doing all these chores above and beyond the chores you had set up for the family, including his now brother, Jeff. (laughs) He's done all of those, Ezra has. You ask him, son, what are you doing? And Ezra looks at you and says, but dad, if I don't do this, I'm afraid that if I don't do my chores and if I don't do, my, do stuff here, you might send me back to Africa. What would you say there? You would remind Ezra, Ezra, you are a Schmidt now. You live in our home. You are our son. You're an heir to everything I have. There is no way you're going back other than just to visit, but we will never send you back. You're part of this family. But Ezra, being a part of this family, you'll have your list of chores that you will do, but then you'll need to know that dinner is at six, and when the chicken is put on the table, you'll not put your fingers there, you'll not heap your plate. You'll not do that, son. Why? There is more than enough for everybody here, is what you would say. You would never kick him out just because he did not meet the standard. Because it's all paid. He's your son now. But the question is, how will he live as a Schmidt? See, how do we live as Christians now? Christ has paid the price for your redemption. He's paid the price for your redemption. You will not be lost now. You belong to God, but how do you live now? So here's a list. Number one, your character. Verse two, the one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. So your character here. Now this is just beyond your outward, your outward expressions, for instance, some may think, hey, you know, for me to be real good, I have to be seen going to church. I have to be seen giving money. I have to be seen volunteering. To, uh, I, I want to volunteer my time. I want to serve in the local church or serve a parachurch organization within our city. All those things are good things. Go to church, yes. Give generously, absolutely. Serve the body of Christ here at Northview, or you could even serve food bank or other agencies. Absolutely, serve. Those are good but God is interested in your inner character. It's what's inside of you that he's most interested in. What's the motive 
What's your motive for doing the things you're doing? So for instance, one whose walk is blameless. Now in the Bible, there's one guy whom God says, yeah, that person is blameless. Who's that person? Job. The Lord said of Job, in Job chapter 1 verse 8, Job is blameless. In Job chapter 1 verse 1, an introduction to the book. Who's this Job? Job was a person who feared God and turned away from evil. He feared God, meaning he had this reverent awe about God. So in other words, he knew God created of heaven and earth, created all things. This God has standards. This is a God whom has to be honored. And because I want to honor this God, I will turn away from evil. Is that what you do, dear Christian? Is that you? Where you know that God sees you and all you do, do you turn away from evil? Do you? Turn away? Or who does what is righteous? So who's this person? What does it mean to do something that is righteous? So Abraham, what, his, what he did was created to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do? In Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God. He believed God. And that belief, it was credited to him as righteousness because his belief in what God had said led to his actions. So it was not just the actions, it was the fact that he believed God. Question, the Lord has given us his word. Multiple times the Lord will say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have a plan for you. Do we believe God? Or not? Do you? And does your belief in God influence the way you live? He also says, who speaks the truth from their heart. So here, it's not just an outward expression of truth, but it's an inward posture, an inward posture of truth. Why do I say this? Because in the ancient world, the heart was often considered the foundation of a person's character. Your heart was considered the foundation of your character. Out of, your, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. So, the prophet Samuel, in Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, man may look at outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. The point here is this. God is interested in your inner character. God is interested in your attitudes. He's interested in your beliefs. He's interested in your standards, your ethics, your morality, your principle, your overall disposition. God is interested in that for you to live in his holy presence your character matters. Second, your words. Verse three, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to his neighbor and casts no slur on others. So a few years ago, there's a very interesting story that uh, came online. A story about a lady called Justine Sacco. Justine did something, something big. She went on Twitter and tweeted some stuff. Well, I'll, I'll just read, and 
I'll just relay the, the encounter for you. So Justine, it was 2013, and she was flying from New York. She was a PR representative of a big company handling communications for that specific company. So she decides it's just almost Christmas Eve. It's December 20th. She's going to fly from New York, stop over in London, England on a layover, and then fly from London to Cape Town, South Africa to visit her family for Christmas. So now she boards her flight to London. When she gets there, she walks by uh, a fellow passenger off of, on, on first class. And so this is what she says. She tweets this. She has about 120 followers on Twitter. She says, quote, Weird German dude, you're in first class, it's 2013, get some deodorant in a monologue as I inhale body odor. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. She tweets this, and then she gets off the plane. So she walks around Heathrow Airport in London, a lot of Brits serving in various cafeterias uh, and, and things like that. Then she tweets again, chili, Cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. And tweet. Now, if you've been to London, yeah, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth. Mm. <laughs> December 20th now. She's now about to board her flight to go to Cape Town, South Africa to visit her family. She tweets, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. So she leaves her phone on for a bit, and then she turns it off because, of course, you have to turn off your phone, and now the plane takes off. She's on a flight, traveling. She's on a plane going. She can't get any cell reception. Watching movies, reading, sleeping, whatever she's doing. Now, this is on Twitter. So her tweet begins to trend, and as it's trending, someone decided to respond to Justine's tweet. Quote, in light of Justine Sacco's disgusting racist tweet, I am donating to CARE today. CARE is an organization that cares for the takes care of um, the disenfranchised people around the world. So this person wants to donate to CARE, given Justine's disgusting, racist tweet. Another person says, how did Justine Sacco get a PR job? Her level of racist ignorance belongs to Fox News. AIDS can affect anyone. Her colleague chimes in, I don't want Justine Sacco doing any communication on our behalf ever. Her boss chimes in, this is an outrageous, offensive comment. Employee in question is currently unreachable on an international flight. The anger turns into excitement. Someone says, now remember, it's around Christmas time. Someone says, all I want for Christmas is to see Justin's face when the plane lands and she checks her inbox and voicemail. Another one, oh man, Justine is going to have the most painful phone turning on moment ever when her plane lands. Another one, we are about to watch Justin Sacco get fired in real time before she even knows she's getting fired. Another one, hey, Twitter, please, can someone in South Africa go to the airport and take a picture of Justine when she gets off the plane? Come on, Twitter. Guess what? Someone actually went to the airport, 
took a picture of this lady and shared it on Twitter. You see, nowadays it's very easy to instantly pass on information about other people. And yes, Justine, a foolish tweet that she thought would just be something funny was offensive to others. And so, yes, Justine's words not justified. That was a foolish comment to make. But then you now have these people who get angry and begin to really beat her up. And there are some offensive tweets that I didn't read that were sent about what she had to say. And then there were those now who are celebrating her demise now and couldn't wait for her to be fired. And when she realized that she was the number one trending tweet on planet Earth during that time, the horror that came upon her and everybody's celebrating her demise. You see, James would say in James chapter 3 verse 5, the tongue, your words now, whether written on Twitter or what spoken, the tongue is like a small fire that can set ablaze an entire forest and therefore bring great ruin. Question, dear Christian, what do your words say about you? What do your words say about you, dear Christian? What do they say about you? See, the point is those who are to live in God's house must, they must have a restrained tongue. They must be very careful with their words. Fourth, your company. Verse four, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. Now, if you were asked, what is one verse that would summarize the entire Bible? What would be your answer? So think for a moment. One verse that would summarize the entire Bible, what would be your answer? I would suggest this. My answer would be Psalm 1 verse 1. Someone says this, Blessed is the man, or woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Day and night. This blessed is not God blessing. This is happy, successful, contented is this person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. This person is not influenced by a secular worldview. Now, when I say a worldview, what do I mean? You may say, let me ask you this question. And you'll know what I mean by worldview. Let me ask you this question. If I came up to you and I said, hey, describe for me a beautiful woman. How would you describe a beautiful woman? So think for a moment. What categories would you use to describe a beautiful woman? All right. So some of you already have your categories now. Question, what informed your categories? What helped you shape the categories you've just used right now to define what, in your view, would be a beautiful woman? 
follow-up question to that. Did you use the word of God and the categories the word of God has set that would define what a beautiful woman is? See, the categories you may have used, if they are not from the scripture, that's a worldview. The scripture also has categories, which is also a worldview. The scriptures define what a beautiful woman is, what a handsome man is. A worldview is the lens, the categories you use to describe or define what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Is your worldview biblical? Or is it informed by the secular world around you? See, I grew up on the eastern side of Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. It was a ghetto where I grew up. I loved playing soccer. And my dad kept saying, Ezra, you will not play soccer with the kids in the community. If anything, I did not go to school, the schools around our community. Why? Because those kids were also going to those schools. So my dad took me on the western side of the city. I had to wake up early in the morning, 5 in the morning, get ready, 5.30 is out the door to take a public bus across town to be in school by 7.30 in the morning. Why? Because my dad knew bad company corrupts good morals. I desired to play soccer with those kids. And soccer is all I was thinking. There was a club, I was good enough, I knew how to play with these kids, so I had to only play with my brothers, my two brothers. So three of us, we can't really play a good game. And these are all these kids in the area. I could not play with them, why? Because my dad knew. Ezra, if you play with those kids, you'll become like them. Why? Because if you lie down with dogs, you will get up with fleas. He knew this. He knew this. See, Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the point here is if we are to live in God's house, we do not conform to the pattern of the world. Fourth, your integrity, who keeps his oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. So, as I was putting this sermon together and I came to this point, I was reminded of my parenting skills. So there was this time when um, my kids were just having a hard time, school stuff and all that. So there I was being a good dad. I was right in their face. You know, it's going to be great and all that stuff. And they were just discouraged. And I said, okay, you know what? On this particular Saturday, guys, we're going to go to the pool. I'll take you to the pool. I might get into the water. You know, I don't do the water thing, but okay. I might get into the water with you in the pool. We'll play. We'll have all these pool noodles. We'll have a good water fight there. And then after that, we'll, we'll go to McDonald's, have a little burger and fries. Their eyes lit up. And then we'll come back home and we'll build a fort in the, in the basement. We'll collect all these cardboard boxes and everything. Build a beautiful fort and play like house in the basement, and I meant every word of this. I meant it all. So now life happens, right? They go back to school, they're all excited, this Saturday's coming, we're gonna do this, and I'm busy working and everything, so I had a very hard week. Busy, a lot of appointments, a lot of responsibilities, dealing with Jeff, don't tell him, but you know, just a hard week. And I was looking forward to Saturday. So Saturday rolls in, 
I wake up early in the morning, I watch, I watch the British soccer, so I go down to my basement, turn on my TV, lay on my couch and cover myself with a throw blanket there, just relax, I'm going to take in this game, it was a big game, and I was waiting for this game. And just as I settle in, my son comes downstairs, Daddy, so when are we going to the pool? Oh dear. Uh, son, I'm tired. But daddy, you said, yeah, I, I know I said that, that uh, son, but you know what? The pool is not going to go anywhere. The pool is always going to be there. So we can go tomorrow. We can go next week, Saturday. But today, daddy said, but daddy, you said, you said, and I was looking forward, you said, and you know, in the pool, they have this wave thing. And oh, yes, son, I know. But dad, it's also half price. Yeah, but son, I know. I know, I... Son, I'm tired today. Dad had a hard week. I just need to relax and did this game. And can we just do it next week? Now, of course, as a parent, I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's my kid. Like, I, we can do it tomorrow. Go talk to your mom. Maybe she'll sort something out for you. <laughs> so my son walks upstairs, leaves me in the basement. I'm feeling a little bad, but I'm kind of like, ah, but this, the pool is always there tomorrow. I mean, next week. It's all good. So I stand up and I go to the stairwell because I hear him going upstairs and he calls his mom and I'm like, what is he going to tell mom? <laughs> so I stand by the stairwell and then I hear him say, mommy, dad always says that he will do stuff with us, but he never does. And right at that moment, do you know this wide-eyed emoji uh, look? <laughs> that one? That was me. Why? Because at that moment, it, it occurred to me that my son thinks that his dad's word cannot be trusted. Dear Christian, how many times have you said, hey, you know, I'm going to commit this, and you don't come through? I'm going to volunteer and say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to pray for you. You never do. How many times? For those who are to live in the Lord's house, they keep, they keep their word. They keep their word. Fifth and finally, your commas. By commerce, I mean your social dealings with people. Verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So here you have two groups of people. There's the poor, and to be poor in the ancient world was way worse than being poor today. Today, if you're poor, you might get something at the food bank, might. If you miss it today, you might get it tomorrow. In the ancient world, there was no food bank. If you didn't have, you didn't have, you were staring at death in the face. And then you have the innocent, who probably had no money to get a good lawyer to defend them. So here, David would, God would say through David, who lends money to the poor without interest, and who will not accept a bribe against the innocent. Meaning, you have two vulnerable people, you will not take advantage of people who are vulnerable, is the point. So a good illustration for that would be uh, Jeff 
and he's, he's, he's used this story before. He used to work for a car rental company. It was about 9-11. When 9-11 happened, when the planes hit the Twin Towers and they came down and all that, Jeff was on that specific day working. And the towers came down and all that. And so now his boss, realizing that no flights are allowed to fly in, in the U.S. airspace, a lot of stranded travelers will want to rent vehicles. So the boss comes and tells Jeff, hey, dude, and not just Jeff, but all the workers there, we are going to hike up our prices four times. So a vehicle that would have cost 50 bucks a day will now be $200 a day because a lot of travels will come. So now, here you see all these young families and seniors coming. They were hoping to go back home, but their flight has been canceled indefinitely. And so they're wondering, should we drive across the United States to Tennessee, Ohio, wherever, Montana? Should we drive? And now, how much will it cost? And so they come to the rental company and they say, hey, how much for this little car? $200 a day. But I thought it was 45 bucks. No, 200 bucks a day, US. For Jeff's boss, in his mind, when there is high demand for something, the price goes up. But in God's economy, when you see people in need, you don't take advantage of that person. Those who are to live in God's house must seek justice above personal gain. You seek justice above personal gain. Now, you may have seen this list and wondered to yourself, man, there's no way I make that list because I know me, right? You may think that, hey, you know what? God will kick me out of his house because I don't keep any of this. Maybe keep one or two, but not all five. God will kick me out. You see, that's why the gospel is good news. That's why the gospel is good news. Why do I say this? I say this because my status, your status in God's house is not dependent on your ability to keep the house rules. I'll repeat that again. Your status in God's house is not dependent on you keeping the house rules. You're Ezra Schmidt already. You've been adopted into the family. The monies have been paid for. The forms have been filled. You're Canadian already. You're a Christian. God adopted you. So the gospel, very quickly, Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. That's very important, sinless life. And then died on a cross, rose again, ascended. So now, his death on the cross, we all know. His death on the cross paid for your sin and mine, right? So now, when you become a Christian, your sin is paid for. You're now sinless, which is great. But your sinlessness is not enough for you to enter heaven. Not enough. You need to be righteous as well. And in order to be righteous, you do. You keep God's law. Perfectly. You need to be righteous, but who can be? You look at this list, you and I can't keep it perfectly, can we? No, we can't. 
That's why the sinless life of Jesus is very important. Why? Let's assume you were to give Jesus a gold star for his sinless life, okay? So when you become a Christian, not only does Jesus forgive your sin because he paid for it, but he gives you his gold star. So when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, before God, he'll say, okay, so why should I allow you to come into heaven? Yes, because Christ has paid my, for my sin, so I'm sinless. The father will say, yes, but are you righteous? You would show him Jesus' gold star. Why? Because the sinless life of Christ is now credited to you. So when God looks at you, it's as though you never sinned. That's the gospel. It's as though you never sinned. That's the scandal of the gospel. So the father will look at you and say, yes, righteous. Because of the righteousness of Christ on your account. That's why the scriptures say, Christ is our righteousness. So now you may ask, okay, so Ezra, what's the point of your sermon then? When you say, hey, we keep these house rules, why should we keep these house rules? You may say, that's a great question. I'll end with an illustration. I want you to imagine if you lived in medieval Europe and you are a rebel, you lived in a rebel country, a rebellious country, and there was another king, a more glorious king, who you were rebellious against. Then this king rolled into your town and he saw all these rebellious people and he saw you. You are rebellious, but yet you are also a slave in that kingdom where you were captives. And this king saw you, nothing attractive about you, nothing at all, but this king saw you and he had mercy on you. Paid for your freedom. You are now released. He brought you now into his care, brings you into his kingdom and into his palace. You're filthy dirty. He gets all his servants to cleanse you. So now you're clean. He gives you a new robe, rings, shoes, everything. And he also decrees that you will now be a prince or a princess in his kingdom. This king. You don't deserve to be there. You were rebellious against him. You used to swear against him. But he has shown you mercy and grace. And now you're, you're eating from his table. This king. As a prince or a princess in this kingdom. Heir in this kingdom. All that is his is now yours. What would be the expectation there now? You're a prince. You're a princess. The expectation would be this that you now live up to your new status. You will never be kicked out because the decree has already been signed, sealed, delivered. You will never lose your title. But now, the expectation is you live up to your new status. Dear Christian, Christ has paid the price for you. Live up to your new standard. Watch your character, watch your words, your company, your integrity, and your commas. Live up to your new status. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. 
the fact that, Lord, our deeds, our status in your kingdom is not impacted by our deeds, but, Lord, you expect us to live up to our new status. And, Father, I pray would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us, Lord, to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that we profess. Thank you for the grace that you afford us. Thank you for the mercy that you show us. We do pray, Father, would you equip us and enable us to live our lives accordingly, Father. Constantly remind us of the gospel, that it is only by grace that we stand before you. But also help us, Lord. Now that we are in your family, help us, Father, to live our lives, to be a reflection of what we profess. Commend ourselves now, Father, to you. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.